welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 36. Yeah. Alright, this is where I have to admit that my originally planned for subject will not be appearing as the subject this week, as you no doubt knew already because you saw the subject line for today's episode. But look, before you at me, please let me have a second to explain. So as a cisgender Caucasian dude in his late 40s, I am really endeavoring to be as thorough as I can in getting all the diverse subjects, as many of them as I can, for the diversity episode. And as of my recording deadline for the week, I had about a half a dozen, but that wasn't going to be enough for a full 30-minute episode. I mean, I could have just run that half dozen, but what I had on them, the background information I had, you know, all the good historical information that I had, it wasn't enough for a really good, long 30-minute episode. And I call that half-assed, and I refuse to do half-assed when I do this show. And in anticipating your next question, I had been researching for about a week and a half. And then I arrogantly figured, oh, hey, you know, I'll be able to just find another five or six subjects. This will all come together. It won't be a problem. Yeah, come to find out, I have no idea where in the hell to find everything that I need for this episode. I am literally relying on social media to help me. So... Yeah, going to have to work a little bit harder on that one. Of course, if you follow the show accounts on Facebook or Twitter, you probably figured that one out already, too. So I'm admitting that. That's a hell of an admission. But I do have a solution. Not the greatest solution, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to delay the diversity episode for a few more weeks so that I can get some more subjects to cover and I can dive a little deeper on the subjects I already have on hand. That way the episode can be what I want it to be, which is a really good, strong, solid episode. In the meanwhile, I do want to do a quick shout-out to Awfully Queer Heroes, at Creators Assemb, at Hatchling DM, at Unlucky underscore Archer, and at Rolling D's 20s. These are, that's that first, it's actually five groups that I've been researching. And I do have some great stuff, I just wanted more. And I want this to be a proper episode before it drops. In the meanwhile, check those five out and see why I believe we need to do that proper respect for an episode. Okay, so now that I've bummed you out and maybe pissed you off because I'm changing subjects, what exactly are we going to discuss this week? Well, like I said, if you were paying attention to the subject line for the episode, you already know, but let me do this properly. Episode 36, How Do I Prep a New Campaign? All right, so how did we get to this point? I mean, I just got done saying last week, I don't do these kinds of shows. Matt Mercer does this kind of show. Matt Colville does this kind of show. Professor DM does this kind of show. I don't do this kind of show. But now here I am doing two in a row. What the hell is that all about? Three reasons. I mean, you you know about the issues with the diversity episode. Second, the episode that I want to do on dice and gaming has to run next week because reasons. And three, I've had several discussions with listeners on Facebook and Twitter about this. And it made sense that if I was ever going to do this episode, I needed to do it here. Now, I'll expand on point two at the end of the show because... 
like reasons. But look, we dropped last week's episode almost 30 hours later than usual. And by 11 p.m. Central Time on Sunday night, we had more plays than we would have had typically if we dropped it on time. So that, followed up with the discussions I was having with folks who messaged me on Facebook and Twitter, gave me that confidence to shift to this topic when Thursday night rolled around and my show was not up to my level of expectations. Plus, I'm actually working on a new campaign right now, so it'll be interesting to cover the process while it's all still fresh in my mind. Oh, and just like I did last week, let's put out a disclaimer. I am in no way claiming that my way of doing things is the only way to do it, nor am I saying it's the best way to do it. All I'm saying is that this is the way that typically works best for me and my group. You may find other ways that work best for you, and as I cover other ways that I've experienced over the years that might work for you, I'll talk about those too. But really, what it all boils down to, I suggest trial and error to see what methods are going to work best for you in the long run. Okay, so the obvious first step in prepping a new campaign is the choice of game and system. And while my last campaign was Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition, I decided that for my next game, I don't want to play D&D. Yeah, I know. That's shocking, right? I mean, I've only been running D&D pretty much nonstop for the past three or four or five or... Yeah. I've been running it a long time. There's two reasons for this for me. And yeah, here I am with the lists again. First off, the fact that I've been running D&D for as long as I have at this stretch is why I want to break from it. Especially after the issues I caused myself in the last campaign. I, I just feel like changing games and systems is a good idea, not only for myself, but for my group. And there are reasons for that. And I'll try to get into that as we go through the prep process. If not, we'll talk about it another time. My other reason for this decision is that the next game that we're playing as a group is the Warhammer role-playing game. My buddy Jim is taking the GM seat for that, and since that game is in the fantasy realm, I decided I want to get away from that when I take that chair back later on this year. By the way, we will be doing a deep dive into the Warhammer role-playing game in a future episode, so if you don't know about it already, I'm going to tell you all about it a little later. Oh, and since I mentioned it, you're probably wondering why I'm already prepping a campaign that probably won't even start for several months. Well, if you think back to last week's episode, I mentioned that I believe it's a good idea to have a backup prepped, just in case someone needs time off or a game ends earlier than planned. That's part of my reasoning, but I also have to admit that I've been jonesing to run the game I'm going to be running for quite some time, and so I decided to strike while the proverbial creative iron is hot. So even though the game probably won't start until July or August, I wanted to go ahead and start working it up now. And yeah, there's advantages and disadvantages to that. One of the advantages, in addition to kind of what I've already laid out, is that I'm giving myself more time to get the story outline worked out so that it's as solid as I can make it before my players even sit down for the first session. After all, I believe, and I have said, that one of my greatest failures in my last campaign was the fact I didn't have a solid three-part story outline before we started playing. That made the game harder to run the further we went along. So if I start working on it now, I have more time to figure out where I want my players to go, and more importantly, what I want them to accomplish before the campaign ends. In this instance, time is a great gift that I fully intend to take advantage of. But for every advantage, there's a disadvantage. 
I mean, with all that time to think and plan, there's ample opportunity for overworking the game. In, instead of fully developing the first third of the game and then having outlines for the other two thirds, I do run the risk of trying to fully develop everything. And while that's not necessarily a bad thing, sometimes if you've got everything written out, you leave no room for your characters to drive the story, and it feels like you're railroading them rather than allowing them to have true freedom to play their characters. Hey, maybe this is a good point to discuss the railroad and sandbox types of games. I think I've covered this before, but it really bears repeating. A railroad game, more commonly known as a game on rails, is a game that has a fairly tightly defined story path. It means that while the players have some choices, they're ultimately going where you want them to go, even if that's not necessarily what they want to do. And look, for some groups, you have to have the game on rails. Some groups just need to be led along the story path from major point to major point. And that's okay. Some groups just need that limitation and choice in order to be able to make their way through a campaign. But some games and some groups don't work like that. They won't work if you keep the game on rails. So that's where the sandbox comes in. A sandbox game is a game where you have the basics defined. Who are the major bad guys? What is the ultimate goal? Pretty much everything else is up to the group. Where they go, what kind of adventures they have to get from point to point. The group drives the adventure and your game world is literally the sandbox they get to play in. Now, in my opinion, the sandbox game is a much more difficult game to run as a GM, or, or at least it always has been for me. As a player, though, oh, love the sandbox game. Gives me the opportunity to really feel like I'm in charge of my own destiny. Now, if you want to know more about these types of games and how you can prep them, head on over to YouTube. You can look them up. I can tell you there's a ton of videos out there that not only define them in deeper detail, but also give you the ideas of how to set up and run each type of game. But as I'm always fond of saying, you'll have to find the method that works best for you. So with that in mind, what kind of campaign will my next campaign be? <laughs> it's going to sound like a cop out, but I'm going to do a little bit of both. See, early on, it's going to be a game on rails. The way I'm laying it out, the first handful or so of adventures are basically mandatory. They're designed to flesh out the area I've created for the game, give the players an idea of what's going on in the area, and let the players really figure out how to run their characters. Once we get through those, the game will have more of a sandbox feel. I'll have a couple of different ideas available based off of the actions of the players from the first few adventures, and they'll drive the story from there. They'll choose the adventure hook that sounds best to them, and we'll go from there. Now, that's not to say we won't get back on the rails from time to time. I mean, after all, there are certain things that have to happen as the campaign rolls along so that we can reach our eventual conclusion. But if I do this right, I should be able to adapt some of those things into whatever choices the group makes so that it doesn't feel like I'm railroading them and it feels like they made that choice that led them to that point. Of course, only time is going to tell on that. So I'm doing all this talking about what kind of game I'm going to run and I haven't even told you what game I'm running yet. I'm going to run the original version of Deadlands. We did a deep dive on Deadlands a while back, and I mentioned in that episode that there are three versions of the game. The original that was released in 1999, a D20 version released during the rise of the D20 systems in the 20-aughts, and the current version, which is based on the Savage World system. Now, since I own all of the books for the original version, and it really is my favorite, that's the version I'm going to run. If you're interested in checking it out, your best bet's going to be on PDF, since this version's been out of print for well over a decade. 
P-E-G-I-N-C.com is the website for Pinnacle Entertainment. They are the publishers of Deadlands, and you can head to their site and buy PDFs of this version. I know. I checked. You can also get them at DriveThruRPG.com. Now, if you're a hard copy fan, you can search the web for used copies, but I'm going to warn you, they're not easy to find, and it's going to cost you a little bit more than cover price value if, uh, if you can find them. Uh, another option would be if your friendly local neighborhood game store happens to deal in used games, check them out. Chances are, you know, they might have a copy. And if not, let them know you're looking for a copy and they will be on the lookout for you. So what is it about the original version of Deadlands that I like so much? Part of it is I think it's the fact it uses D12s, D8s, D6s, and D4s for skill rolls. You know, that's different. The D20 system uses the D20 exclusively for those checks, and it's a fairly cookie-cutter system, regardless of what game you're playing. I also like the use of playing cards in Deadlands. They're used by spellcasters, and they're also used at character creation. I'll get to that in a minute. And they're also used for initiative, so that's different. And I like the use of the Fate Chip, which is awarded for gameplay during the game, and it's something that could be used to cash in to maybe change rolls or get a re-roll, or if you don't use them for any of that, they can be used to help advance your character, kind of like an experience point. Now, I know that these are used in the two other versions of the game as well, but when you combine the chips with the cards and the dice, it's just that really romantic kind of combination for gaming that just appeals to me. So, there you go. So, a couple of weeks ago, my group had a session zero for my game. We, we also session zero Jim's game as well, since he's going first. But you know, with the amount of time we had a night, we knew. Two session zeros, one night, everybody's happy. What exactly is a session zero, you might be asking? Session zero is the modern term for what old school gamers called getting together to create your characters. It's an opportunity for the group to all create their characters together at the same time and discuss some background for themselves for the upcoming game. For GMs, this is an opportunity to leak some of the background details of your game. I say some because you're going to want to give your players an idea of what kind of game you're going to run so that they can create characters for that type of game. Now, for Deadlands, it's pretty much assumed that at some point there's going to be some weirdness going on, so there's not really going to be a lot of surprises to drop on your group. In other systems, though, there are multiple different types of games you can run. And as I pointed out last week, if you promise your players a combat-heavy game and then give them a political intrigue-heavy game, they're not going to be real happy with you. So Session Zero allows you to work out some of those kinks before you ever sit down to play the first session. For my group, Session Zero was also an opportunity to begin instructing the group about some of the rules for Deadlands. After all, I've got two players in my group that haven't really played much at all, so they don't really know anything other than D20 D&D. And while Deadlands isn't a completely exotic game, its rules are different enough that them being able to ask questions while creating characters, that's a big deal. And I know you're wondering why I had my players create characters now when I'm probably not running for six months. It goes back to campaign creation for me. If I know what kind of characters I'm going to have in my game, I can set up the encounters to fit what my players are playing. Plus, since all five of them did me the solid of coming up with at least a basic background, I can also weave that into the campaign at creation so that their backgrounds can come into play without it feeling forced. So in short, I have the character sheets to look at while I'm writing and creating, and I can use them to help me plot out where things are going to go. 
And Jim gets that same advantage because we did the same thing for his Warhammer game. See, this is what I like about Session Zero. It really gives the group as a whole the opportunity to be creative without the constraints of being in live play. Players can kick ideas around without being tied to them. For the record, it's entirely possible that some of the background material I've been provided is going to change by the time I run the game. And, and that's okay. I'll just shift out of what's no longer relevant and replace it with what is. The fact that I had something to work with at all it's going to make changes that much easier to make. And if I wind up having to run something off the cuff, God forbid, I'll have a ready-made set of backgrounds to use to dig up some adventure ideas. Now, it should be noted that no gaming should be taking place during a session zero, at least not the way we do it. Now, I've read about some groups who use Session Zero to play out individual meetings with the GM so they can sort out why they're where they are when the campaign starts. But look, for me, that's not what Session Zero is all about. I prefer to put that type of material in the first half hour or so of the first session so everybody has the opportunity to get into character, focus on their motivation, and be ready to go when we're all at the table and gaming. But I've said this a hundred times and I'll say it a hundred times more. You do you. All right, so let's step back from the actual campaign creation for a minute and talk about character creation. I'll discuss Warhammer when I do that episode, so we're focusing on Deadlands. Besides, Warhammer is Jim's game, and I'm not going to speak to his motivations until I've had a chance to talk to him about his motivations. So in creating characters, I first asked each of my players what kind of character they had in mind for this game. I mean, to me, that's important. If, if I know what you want to play, I can help you make the choices during creation that will allow that vision to better come to life. And Deadlands, unlike D&D, doesn't have character classes. There are character archetypes in the book, but those are really suggestions. So Jim and I were talking about it, and we decided to give the group this thought. Think of every Western movie and television show you've ever seen. What character from one of those is something you would want to play? Now, I'll grant you, you can do this with other games to a certain extent. I mean, if you want to play the Knights of the Round Table in a D&D game, the classes of the game, especially with their various options, do let you pretty much match it up like that. However, Deadlands has that special thing it does. You can play the Gambler, who's also a gunslinger. You can be the former soldier, who's become a pacifist. You can do the stereotypical hooker with a heart of gold who's also just a complete badass when it comes to throwing down. It's a really a game where if you can think of it, you should be able to make it happen. So getting back to character creation. Once each player has decided what they want to be, they draw 12 cards from a regular card deck. After they turn them over and look at them, they can toss two. The only exception is that if they draw a joker, they have to keep it. Now, the cards have die types associated with them. The, the value being the die type, the suit being the number of dice. So, for example, an ace of spades is 4d12, while a two of clubs is 1d4. After looking at the cards, the player assigns their dice to the various attributes on their character sheet according to the type of character they're looking to play. Once they've done that, they have a certain number of points they can put into skills, which give them bonuses to rolls made on the corresponding attribute. Look, the idea here really is, if you're wanting to play like a gunslinger character, then you're going to want to put your best die values into the things that, like, that shoot and give you quick draw and things like that. If you're wanting to play more of a... Uh, a gambler type, then you're going to want sleight of hand and gambling and, and those kinds of things. 
It's a matter of taking the best die amounts and putting them where you need them and then putting more points into the skills that support that. Next up, they can choose to take hindrances, which give them points they can use to either purchase edges or put more points into their skills. Hindrances are negative things that should be coming into play with the role play. And they can vary from things like missing an arm to having a mental condition to being a pacifist, which it's going to be interesting in a game where everybody runs around armed. Edges are perks, basically, which give the character certain advantages. They range from having more money at the start to having friends that can help them out from time to time to even getting more bonuses on attacks or skills. It really all just depends on the number of points a player is willing to spend. Though I do need to point out, there are limits to how many points worth of hindrances a character can have at creation. Yeah, yeah, that's the old min-max thing there. Once that's done, there's a bit of math you need to do, sort a few other items out. Then you just purchase your gear and develop a background for your character. All in all, if the player has a pretty good idea of what they want to do, they can get through the creation process in about a half an hour. Some are going to go faster, some are going to go longer. Just the nature of the beast. Oh, and the reason why jokers are kept during creation. Jokers give the character a sort of past. Might be they've got an enemy that's out there hunting them down. It might be they're haunted by something they did. Or it might be their character is what is known as harrowed. In other words, undead. Yeah, a PC in this game can be undead. If they're trying to keep it a secret from the rest of the group, it can make for some pretty interesting roleplay, especially considering that in Deadlands, Harrowed have what's known as a Manitou in their head, which is the spirit that allows them to live. Sometimes the character has good control over the Manitou, sometimes the character is barely holding on to control, and sometimes the Manitou is in control, which means the GM is in control of the character. Makes for really fun times. Needless to say, we don't have any Harrowed in our party, even though four of the five players drew a Joker at character creation, and one of those poor saps drew two. When we were creating characters, since I have two copies of the player's book, two players were creating characters at the same time, and then as one would finish, another one would step up until I had all five done. What was really cool was once the first two were done, all of them started talking about their backgrounds and why they were out adventuring. They really worked hard to try to figure out what their motivations were going to be and whether or not they were all going to know each other. I mean, I told them it didn't really matter if they knew each other or not. Quite frankly, I like it sometimes when they don't because that makes for some really interesting role play at the start of a new campaign. But they ultimately decided that a couple of them knew each other. They figured out how they knew each other. And then I knew based on the backgrounds how I could get them all pulled together for the first adventure. Which leads me back into campaign creation. Because, you see, I've been working on this for a little while. Remember last week when I talked about the long, dry spell I had with my D&D game? The one I just couldn't get motivated to work on? You'll note that I mentioned I kind of got my mojo back all of a sudden. Well, look, part of that is because I started doing this podcast. Kind of amazing how doing research into role-playing games helps get those creative juices flowing again. But the other part of it was that I started sketching out the idea for a Deadlands game. Now, I was keeping that a secret from the group at that time because of my nasty little habit of dropping games before they were finished. However, with the campaign now over, I could let this group in on a few of the details, especially since I knew it was going to help them in the creation process. For the record, I have a little something for all three of the major points of the story. I definitely know how this ends. I have a good turning point for the adventure that starts us down the path to get to that ending. And I definitely have an opening. 
In fact, the opening with its first five adventures is already fully fleshed out. Now, I can't share too many details with you because, as I said last week, most of my group listens to this show, so I don't want to give away all my surprises. But for this game, I decided to create a city in the southwest corner of Kansas for my game to start in. There's a lot of background as to why I chose the area I did, but the short form is this. In Deadlands, the U.S. Civil War still hasn't ended by the time the game starts, which is 1876. Kansas is still a disputed territory, which means I don't have to fool around with Union or Confederate governments and rules. And I decided to create my own town because, well, there were a ton of towns in the Old West that didn't survive, so how do we know there wasn't really a town there? Besides, it allows me to populate it how I want and set things up the way I want for a couple of really easy adventures for those first couple of games so the players can get used to their characters. Plus, it should, in theory, cause the characters to feel like they've got a stake in what happens to the town, which makes it easier to get them to do some of the other things I have lined up for them to do. Once all that stuff's dealt with, they'll have the opportunity to set out on their own to track down the clues they'll need to piece together the mystery they'll need to solve in order to complete the campaign. What are those clues? I haven't gotten that far yet. But like I said, I know what the midpoint is, and for me, it's flexible enough that I can drop it to wherever I need to based on the decisions that the group makes once they head out on their own. I know I'm going to have to make some changes to it, because they could go into Union territory, or into Confederate territory, or even into Deseret, which is Utah in this game. And each of those places have their own little quirks that have to be taken into consideration. But if I know what needs to happen, I can make the needed adjustments. And like I said, I know how this ends. Again, most of it's fluid enough right now that I can adjust parts of it as needed for choices that get made down the line. The plan is for things to start getting more concrete the longer the group plays, based on the decisions they make. So at least on paper, I've learned from the lessons of my last campaign and am trying actively to avoid the issues I had with that one. Now with that being said, it's always possible that the group does something that causes a major disruption in my plans. I mean, they could decide to not take any of the adventures I've laid out for them. But by knowing their backgrounds, I can tie those into what I've already got laid out, thereby seeding the adventure with a personal stake for at least one of them to want to do it. And yeah, you can say that's a bit of railroading. But because it's playing off the background that the player created themselves, I don't see it as being much of a bad thing. And the reason for that is that the player should expect their background to be utilized in the storytelling. Otherwise, why the hell are we bothering doing backgrounds? Of course, this is where I admit I've had my players do backgrounds before in-game, and then I never used them. But with the lead time I've got in-game creation for this game, there's absolutely no good reason for me to not use them this time. So with Session Zero in the books and Jim preparing to start his new campaign in a couple of weeks, my discussion of how I create a campaign is done for the moment. And you might be asking, hey, what are you guys going to do in the meantime? Well, I picked up one of the D&D box sets for beginners, mostly because I wanted the adventure that's in it. If you head over to YouTube, I did an unboxing of the set, and I put the video on our site so you can see what all came in that box for about 20 bucks. So for the next game session or two, I'm going to run my players through the adventure that came in that box. However, they are not creating their own characters for the game. What I'm going to do is I created six first-level characters, and I'm going to have them each choose one at random, then play that character. And yes, for the record, they're aware this is coming. I wouldn't be doing it if I hadn't warned them in advance. 
My reason for doing it is an exercise in stretching their role-playing muscles, trying to get them to do something they wouldn't normally do. And since it's only for a couple of games, they should be able to find a way to have fun and make it work. I'll let you know how that goes once I've finished doing it. But for now, we've come to the end of today's tour. Okay, at the beginning of the show, I said something about doing the dice episode, and I said there were reasons. All right, here's the truth, and it's more explanation as to why I haven't been getting the promised stuff out on time. I have an ill family member, and they've already had one surgery, and they've got another one scheduled for next week. So I've been dealing with that, plus all my usual responsibilities. And before you ask, because you might, as I talk about them all the time, no, it's not my grandson. So it's one of the adult members of my family. Now, I'm not telling you any of that because I'm looking for sympathy. I'm just telling you this to explain why all of a sudden I'm not as reliable as I was you know, when I started this. My hope is that with the time I'm going to be taking off next week to help out after this next surgery, I'm going to be able to get a bunch of research done for the diversity episode, and then my hope is that I'm going to have that out in three weeks. In the meanwhile, I am batch recording two other episodes, and they're off of scripts I've been holding on to for backup episodes and YouTube exclusives. And I'm doing that because I want to make sure the next two shows after this one are also on time, as opposed to how things have been the last couple of weeks. So... Next week, you're getting the episode on the history of dice in role-playing games. And it really is an informative episode. I, I learned a whole hell of a lot when I was researching that, so I know that'll be fun. Two weeks, we're going to do a deep dive on R.A. Salvatore and Ed Greenwood. That was originally intended to go last week because it would have been a perfect fit after doing two Forgotten Realms episodes. But that campaign dissection thing really got in my brain, so I shelved this particular script and decided I'd do it another time. So we'll talk about those two creative geniuses in two weeks. In the meanwhile, check out the wonderfully diverse folks I mentioned at the beginning of the show. In case you missed them, they are Awfully Queer Heroes, at Creators Assem, at Hatchling DM, at Unlucky underscore Archer, and at Rolling D's 20s. They're going to feature in the diversity episode for sure, but I wanted to give them a plug this week, even though I know that's a weak-ass apology for not getting the episode out on time. I would appreciate it, though, if you'd let them know where you heard about them. Speaking of appreciation, I really appreciate your patience the last couple of weeks as I've been struggling to keep this podcast coming out on time and failed the last couple of weeks. Your continued support is what drives me to keep digging, keep writing, and keep recording. And trust me, as long as you keep supporting me, I'm going to keep doing this. After all, I've got the notepad full of topics to cover, so we've still got plenty of episodes on deck. A reminder that the music we use in this podcast comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out if you need royalty-free music for any of your projects. I also need to shout them out for the background that I use for the YouTube channel. Pixabay.com has those as well. If you've got something on your mind, you can hit us up on Facebook, Roleplaying History Podcast, Twitter, at RolePlayingP, YouTube, we've got that channel, Roleplaying History Podcast. Dude, we've been doing this long enough by now, you know what to do when you get there. You can email us, roleplayinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. I would note that if you know of a diverse group that's developing a role-playing game or a live stream or a podcast, drop me a message at any of those places, and I'm going to make sure we get the research done to get them into the diversity episode. But next week, it's Dice Dice Baby. Oh, God. The hell's wrong with me? Anyway, that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're role-playing history.